Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy! Hello. Hello. <laughs> is this working? Uh, it's not on. <laughs> uh, is it on? Yes. It's working now. Um, I'm pretty loud. I don't know that you need this. <laughs> so I will read a little bit from the book. And I warn you that when I read my own work, it's uh, generally terrible. <laughs> so this this will probably be the uh, the worst part of the event. You're uh, you're blushing already. I can see. I, it's <laughs> it's always awful. So um, anyway, let's see how this goes. It'll be an experiment, and then and also before we start, I just want to say the best part about having done this book, which uh, is about the club kids, is to be able to do this with, with James. This is like uh, the thrill of a lifetime. I, I am just, I don't even know what's going on. <laughs> I am so, I don't know. This is, this whole so, thing is no, very odd. Is, it's it's <laughs> truly the thrill. Thank it's you very much. Thrill. So, all right, I'll read a section. Uh, then there was the time when Baby went to an after-hours party at Kawe Kanam. He'd come back from California with indisputable evidence that he was terrible at being gay, that his social skills needed work. It was a moment he resolved to be with other men, to learn how to be around those who were openly celebratory of their fagitude, men who weren't afraid of their desires, who didn't hide themselves away. As was his want, Baby solved this problem in the craziest possible way. He called Michael Alleg. Kawe Kanam was on First Avenue near the corner of Second Street, next door to the Ortiz funeral home. Around 4.30 a.m., Baby followed a trickle of humanity inside, going to the basement level, where a dance floor sat beside a four-foot-deep pool of water. Baby wondered if the exposed ersatz columns were Doric, Ionic, or Corinthian. The DJ played an old song. For the first time in Baby's life, he listened to the verses. Willfully misinterpreting the lyrics, Baby imagined the vocalist to be in possession of a superhuman ability that allowed her to walk on the sun's molten nuclear surface. Baby, cried Michael Alleg, what do you have on? You don't look very fabulous. Alleg was wearing a bikini mail ordered from 1965. His face was painted with bright yellow makeup. I don't feel very fabulous, said Baby. California broke my heart. Jesus Christ, said Michael Alleg. You're such a drag. Did you come here to be depressed? I thought girls wanted to have fun. He gave Baby a pill. Here, take this, he said. It's pink. It's fabulous. What is it, asked Baby. Who cares? It's mother's little helper. Baby swallowed the pill, chalky like uncoated aspirin, sticking in his throat on its way toward his stomach. I see some people who really matter, said Michael Alleg, people who aren't glum gusses. I'll check in with you after the drug takes effect, and we'll see if you aren't a little less sour. People filtered in, the music played louder. Baby stood by the railings. A girl came over, smiling and saying hello. He couldn't remember if he knew her. He looked at her for a moment too long. Have we met, he asked. 
We haven't talked, she said, but I'm in your philosophy class. Oh, said baby, yes, yes, you sit in front. I always sit in back. Why are you here, she asked. Don't you have school in a few hours? Don't you? Sure, she said, but I'm a bad student. I'm destined to fail. Her name was Regina. In the club, she preferred Queen Rex, a nom de guerre bestowed upon her by Michael Alleg. She told Baby about Kawe Kanum, the name of which was Latin for beware of the dog. A decade earlier, the building was a famous gay bathhouse, its interior done up like a tropical paradise. City officials had shut it down during the dark days when they believed that AIDS was a transmittable cancer. The new owner, Haynes Southern, from New Orleans, had convinced her family to buy the building. The premise being, that stewardship of a restaurant would curb Southern's wild nature and transform her into an upstanding citizen. Such dreams were short-lived. Hain filled the pool with water and let Michael Alleg promote parties. How do you know Michael, asked Queen Rex. We met a while back, said Baby. Why haven't I seen you around? I've been out of town. How do you know Michael? I'm one of his club kids, said Queen Rex. What the hell is a club kid, asked Baby. Didn't you see the story in New York? Michael made the cover. We're all his puppets. Where have you been? Los Angeles, said Baby. Gag, gag, and triple gag, said Queen Rex. Queen Rex convinced Baby that they should dance. During the second song, an up-tempo track about sex, the drugs took hold. People never looked so beautiful. Music never sounded so good. The bathhouse walls radiated remarkable light. More people filtered in, a different crowd. Outrageous people who kept shouting out, Michael, Michael, Michael. Through the waving limbs of the dance floor, Baby saw these people surround Alec, as if he were Christ and they his disciples. He really must be famous now, Baby thought. Why the hell did he return my call? Queen Rex hugged Baby. Baby hugged back a clean hug, an easy clean hug. The music and the lights and the Roman walls came together in an overwhelming burst. Baby felt happy that he'd come to Kawe Kanum, that Michael Alleg invited him. Very happy indeed to meet Queen Rex or Regina, whichever. Would he call her Regina at school? He supposed that he would. People stripped off their clothes and jumped into the pool. Ghost images trailed before Baby. He knew it was the drug, but he also imagined that it was a psychic resonance of the bathhouse days. That these people splashing against each other, screaming, with dirty water the only barrier between their embraces. All of this worked as an erotic sorcery, summoning up the ghost of old New York, of the days when men fucked freely without fear, of a time when his sexuality wasn't being equated with death. Why, he asked Queen Rex, are they doing this? People need to do something, said Queen Rex. But aren't they worried, he asked. No one has sex anymore, said Queen Rex. Sex is so passe. It's everything but. I'm going in the pool. Are you coming in? Maybe in a minute, said Baby. Queen Rex stripped out of her costume. She jumped into the water. Her hands ran over a man's body. A couple grinded against each other. Baby stood three feet away, brain-spurting neurons, intoxicated by his lack of concern. The 80s are the decade of fear, he thought, but the 80s are almost over. Is this what the 90s are going to be like? Drugged out people almost fucking in dirty swimming pools? <laughs> Baby, shouted a voice beside, beside him. It was Michael Alleg, the bikini top off, hair and skin soaking, makeup smeared down his face. Baby, said Michael Alleg, what kind of bitch comes to a person's pool party and then refuses to get wet? 
I'm a rabid dog, said Baby. I'm afraid of water. I'm that kind of bitch. Kawe Kanam. That's so hilarious, said Michael Alleg, because I'm famously rabid and I'm not afraid of anything. Michael Alleg tackled Baby. As they plunged into the lukewarm liquid, Baby wanted to be angry, attempted to will himself toward rage, but it was like a wall in his brain blocked the chemical receptors responsible for negative emotions. He wasn't angry, he was happy, happy at being touched and happy with the liquid, happy that his clothes were soaking wet, happy that Michael Alleg was trying to push his head underwater, happy that people were cheering and touching him. Who am I, he yelled above the splashing water. You're baby, 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 someone said. You're a rabid dog. Now bark like one. And baby barked, grabbing the body of a sweet man beside him, the slick-skinned, waterlogged Adonis of the Lower East Side. They kissed, and baby's head exploded with waves of pleasure coming off the tongue, his body attuned to nothing but this moment, like his erection was the only constant in an ever-changing universe, a holy erection akin to those housed by the pantaloons of Walt Whitman in the month of March in the year 1855, like baby journeyed to the fifth dimension and looked down at Time. Like his atomic particulars were not newly configured, but had always been from the Big Bang at the beginning, pressed against this man, in this pool, in this city, with humanity around him, listening to this terrible song that was the best song ever recorded. Oh, please, whispered Baby into the wet mouth of this Greek divinity, never let it stop, never ever let it stop. See, right there, that asks me more questions than the answers. There's so many things about this book that are just freaking me out because <laughs> you weren't there no. and you aren't old enough to have experienced any no. of this. Okay, I, I want to back up for a second. And um, I had gotten, this was about three months ago, I got a, from the publisher, was it Viking? Who is it? Viking. Yeah, yeah Viking had sent me a package <laughs> and there was a hand, it was the, the press release in the book and there was a handwritten note saying, we thought you might enjoy this this. And I was like, oh, and I just put it next to my bed and I didn't really think about it. And then, I mean, there's like, you know, like a stack of this that I'm supposed to be reading. And then I picked it up one night and I saw baby relishes ketamine fueled clubbing nights and falls <laughs> deep into a club kid twilight zone of sexual excess. And I thought, well, hmm, <laughs> maybe I do need to start reading this. And I started going through it and right off the bat, there's so much verisimilitude happening there. There's there's like there's like uh, subway signs and uh, uh, like ads that I remember, TV ads and radio ads, and there's storefronts that you're describing so perfectly that aren't there anymore. And it's I'm sort of like falling into it's it's very strange. I was like com completely right there. It is like it starts in 1986, and it's like everything is 1986, and then everything is 1987. I was quibbling in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. I was thinking the Zeckendorf Tower weren't there in 86, that was 87. And then I would go back and look, and by God, they were there in 86, and I was wrong, and you were right. And um, I kept finding all these, like, and I would I had a running list of things that I was thinking, like, well, that's not true, that's not true. And it was all true. And you remember better than I 
might do all of these things. And it's, um, we haven't even gotten to the part where I wander in and Michael Alec wanders in, which is just, that's just really weird. Um, but in the, the very beginning, the beginning, I don't, I want to know what your research methods were, how you managed to do what you did. Um, well, the book was written a while ago. Um, it was written, well, the first draft was written between 2011 and 2012, and um, it came off the tail of this other book that I did, Otto, which is about 9-11. Um, and to do that book, I had to learn how to research. Um, and I, when I was writing that, I was so irritated at how bad uh, most of the writing about 9-11 had been that I actually really learned how to research and then sort of jumped into doing this almost immediately. And so there, there are certain ways to do it. One of the things that was enormously helpful is that whoever controls um, Nelson Sullivan's oh, right, Robert Cottington. Right, yes. That's right. Mm -hmm. He's got so much of that stuff online. You know, it, it's funny, just a little side story. Um, Nelson Sullivan uh, was a man who was in his 30s and he was at the clubs every night. This was in the 1980s and he had one of those big old fashioned video cameras that were like, I mean, it was this big, weighed about 400 pounds, I know, and he just carried it around. And none of us really understood at the time. We were all like, oh, here he comes again with that damn camera, get it away from us. You know, we were all. Uh, and we didn't realize, I mean, he was, back then there were no people taking pictures. There were like three club photographers, and he was the only one doing video. And he died in 1988, I believe. I think it's maybe later than that. Was it? I, I, it wasn't that much it later. Wasn't that much, it was on the 4th of July, yeah, and we had right. seen him the day yeah. before, and he was out walking, and he just had a heart attack and, and died. He was only like 37, 38 years old. Um, but he, this archive of like thousands yeah. of hours of footage yeah. of clubs from like 1982 to right. 89 or something like that and he has everybody preserved it's absolutely fantastic if you get a chance it's called the Fifth Avenue Project yeah, I, believe. I believe so yeah, yeah. and um, it's uh, like all John Sex and Lady Bunny when she was like you know 14 years old <laughs> it looks like it's really fascinating so that I can see where yeah, that probably so is so that was enormously useful um, Michael Musto's column mm -hmm. I read 11 years of that. Um, and that that was really useful. And then when I was doing the research, and then there were other assorted things that there were ways to find details from. And, well, oh, yeah. I'm sorry, very quick. Because yeah. what you just read right there, the, um, I remember writing about, we, we didn't call it Conway Conway, it was Conway, we called it Conway because we were just yeah. illiterate little brats. But, um, uh, but the whole thing about Hayne Southern, I don't remember putting that in my book or it being in Frank Owen's book. And Hayne was the standard oil heiress right. and her parents just wanted to get rid of her. Yep. And so they bought her a building in New York City and said, get out of Louisiana and um, that like just don't embarrass us anymore. And so, I don't. Th I didn't think anybody knew about that. Um, so there is an article in I don't know, like whenever she opened it, mm. um, New York. She got New York Magazine to do an article on it. Okay. So that's where most of that comes from. And then you know, there's like the internet has changed a lot because everything's sort of gone onto Facebook. But in 2011, it still hadn't changed that much. So there was still people putting a ton of material 
online from all of this, most of which has kind of disappeared since because at whatever they, like it was in forums and who uses forums anymore. Um, so it was there. It just was like endlessly researching and endlessly digging through old publications because you guys got covered a lot. I, yeah, I, yeah I, I have trunks somewhere in yeah. storage that I, I'm scared to look at. Oh, <laughs> you got covered a lot, a lot, a lot. And there were a lot of photographs floating around. Well, it's funny because when you talk about that thing, it, um, the bit at Kawe Kanam right there, um, uh, I remember there is a picture of Michael in the water with yes. a hot boy. Yeah, yeah, and his yeah. makeup is all smeared. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I, I, I'm, I can I can connect the dots to some of the things that that you are doing, and some of the things were just blowing me away. I have to say that it's. Um, it's very strange. To, I, there's a lot of, in pop culture of people like, like a lot of time travel stuff and they go back and they meet Hitler or, or Abraham Lincoln or Marilyn Monroe or something like that. But very rarely do you see like real live people in fiction. Right. And to run into yourself in a fictionalized novel is very strange. <laughs> and it, um, uh, the first time you introduce Michael and I, just somebody says, uh, oh, I like horror movies or something like that and I was what you watch Dark Shadows and I was like is this what I think it is? Is this? Are you going there? Are you yeah. actually doing this? There's lots about him in Dark Shadows for some it, reason. Well, and, he, and the thing is, I really liked Dark Shadows. <laughs> so my father was really into it. He had like all of the same VHS tapes <laughs> that Michael oh, had. He, so. he had every episode. Yeah. And the first time I ever met Michael was um, we went back to his house. He lived in the Bronx in this tiny little apartment. Um, and we took the subway up and we were like in diapers and a tutu and a clown nose and at five in the morning and then he we went back and we watched dark shadows faces of death <laughs> and um like five hours of i love loosely i think right yeah and that's just what he did every night he just yeah but i mean this is this is how crazy that moment was is like there's multiple articles that talk about michael's vhs collection i mean you can it, the, the, so much of it was covered. Well, you can, if you really dig, you can find the detail. The the retro uh, digging into Michael's psych psychotic nature <laughs> um, after the after the death of Angel right. um, is when you know, like you realize, you go back and you saw all the bloodbath right. feasts, and you saw the you know cutting off hands and arms and, and all that stuff. And it's it's easy to do like an armchair psychoanalysis right. of all that, but I think it probably goes a little bit deeper than that. Well, um, you have you there's an amazing moment in the Party Monster documentary at the end of it, which is you, at the very end, just being like, no, don't you realize he was always a monster? He, he always was, and I, um, <laughs> I, I talk about that now where I say that when I first met him, I mm -hmm. knew the minute I met him mm -hmm. who he was. Mm -hmm. It's that Maya Angelou thing. The minute somebody you know tells you who they are, believe them. And I knew right off the bat that he was a monster. And mm -hmm. he continued to act monstrously throughout our entire friendship. And I always <laughs> knew to, you know we could be friends, but there was a, there was a, a limit that I couldn't right. I couldn't get too close. And so when everything unraveled and everything went down and um, the murder happened, which you go into quite in depth in your book. Um, 
everyone was shocked. Like, what? Ha- I can't believe he did that. And I kept saying, no, we've known all along who he is, and you can't be shocked when a monster does something monstrous. Right. You can be sad, and you can be upset that it came to that, and that, you know, the situation. But I, I couldn't be shocked, and I still, to this day, know exactly who he is, and right. I sort of have to accept him as it is. Um... One of my favorite parts of the book is something that I had a real problem when I was writing Disco Bloodbath, Party Monster. I know the documentary had a real problem with it. Legally, we were not able to put a certain person at the scene of the crime. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure that the, the, the legal department is watching right now, so I'm not even going to say who that person is. But um, there was somebody else in the room at the time of the murder. And that person had a very powerful father, and we'll talk to them about that in a second, who whisked him out immediately, went to the the DA got made a deal, and he was never the legally. I couldn't even say that that person was in the room. Right, and we tried to write around it and figure out how to do it. And in the documentary, tried to do it. And nobody could ever like every time you said a fourth person was in the room or, or, or we were hammered mm-hmm. and everything. You, because this is a, a fictional book, were able to place this person there and you can't name him, I'm guessing, which is why you kept saying Paul Auster's son, novelist Paul Auster's son. No, I, I did that because I hate the children of famous people. Celebrity spawns, <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> and it, it also struck me that the most the way that that played out, the most important aspect of him being there, other than his presence, was that he was Paul Auster's son. Yeah. I thought I was going to get shit. You didn't. And they never mentioned Nobody it. Nobody dinged me. you at ne- all. No, they never mentioned it. Did you, because I, I know when I, was, when I was writing, and I would get, like, I mean, every month I would get a stack of things saying, you can't say this, you right, can't do this, right. because it was a, a nonfiction book, and I couldn't put any celebrity, like, I couldn't say I was smoking crack with Grace Jones, like, right. all those stories, <laughs> they're so fun. Um, I wasn't able to do any of them because... Uh, I, I have no idea how I got away with it. They never... Not, there was Paul never, is coming for you. I get well, it. You can try. Um, but no, I mean, it, they, never asked, they never asked me to change a single thing really? about anyone who is alive or was actually... Well, because that's what I don't understand. I don't understand the, the legality of that. Where I mean, because the conversations that you write about weren't real conversations. No. So, I mean, couldn't I sue you? <laughs> um, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. Or could, couldn't Michael come to you? Or Well, he can't sue anyone because, no, right. because of Son of Sam laws, I think. Right? Like, well, he can't, he can't profit off of yeah, anything. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think that would probably be profiting off of it. Well, you know, it's interesting. When he got out, um, he had, he's been working on his book, uh, Aligula, yes. for like Ever. 15 years yeah. now. And um, it's all written. And when he got out, they were, he was getting, you know, courted by all right. the, you know, all the different, you know, publishers and everything. And everyone was like, we're going to get you 1.2 million. Right. We're going to get you $2 million. Right. And within like three weeks, I think after the O.J. Simpson book, if I did it, mm-hmm. like, you know, and Judith Regan lost her right. position, um, that he, like everything dried up and he cannot get, I mean, and, and for him, he can't really do much of anything anymore. But mm-hmm. but it was going to be a workaround because he was never going to talk about the crime, but then I why see. do you want to buy a book right. if he doesn't mention the crime? Right. It was gonna be, yeah, I've been, I've been wondering about that because I have seen mentions going back. Yeah, well, he still he still thinks that it's going to happen, but I don't think that it can ever happen. I, wow. And I don't no. think it should happen, frankly. No. I, yeah, I, I mean, I agree. Actually, yeah. I really agree. So, no, they never gave me any shit. 
at all. I never even got one note about <laughs> real people, and the book is full of full, real people. Yeah, yeah. You know? But I think most of them are either dead or public figures, and it becomes really, really difficult to, if you're a public figure, to sue anyone for anything. Oh, right. Um, and especially all of us who's like we all have such histories that yeah, are played yeah, out yeah. in like you're you would definitely be a public figure in this case uh -huh. you, you would not you could still sue me but you wouldn't have a case I would not have a case in <laughs> no I would not so, but yeah I mean I don't know I, I I really thought there would be more pushback on that and there was nothing so I don't know maybe, Great. yeah, yeah maybe. from your lips to God's ears that's pretty yeah. fantastic how long did it take you to from start to finish how long did you take to write it because it is a dense book I don't know if, if everyone's read it it is um, it is not it, it's, a, it's, a, it's about 150,000 words yeah and it, it's typeset yeah and it's tightly. 400 pages yeah uh -huh. um, about a year and then a bunch and then years of revision actually because which, I mean, now has sort of become a very known story, so I'll make it as short as possible. I wrote it, and I couldn't get anyone interested in it. And I knew that at the very least it was credibly, credible enough to be published. Um, and then so I put it aside, and I wrote I Hate the Internet. Um, and the whole idea behind I Hate the Internet was just like drug dealing. It was like, I, and I couldn't get anyone interested in that either. But I thought, well, if I self-publish this and it becomes enough of a thing, then it, it'll be like one deal will set up the next deal. And um, so that was always the idea with this. And it worked. And it worked, yeah. And it, you know, like that happened within about a month. After I Hate, I hate the, the Internet. Because I mean, when, I, when I Hate the Internet came out, everything just went insane. Um, and it's only calmed down recently. So it's like a year and a half of dealing with a self-published book. That, that, that succeeded. That succeeded beyond anyone's possible expectations. So you, because I have been toying with, I was telling you before sure. that I can't get it published to save my life anymore. Which is a crime. And I, my agent, I think, James, is James dead. Is a, James is a wonderful, wonderful writer. You're, you've, you've got two books, yeah. right? Both of your books are incredible. Um, my little uh, plug right here, my second book, Freak Show, is a movie that's coming I've out. i heard that. Yeah, yeah, in November, and it's um, Trudy Styler is the director of Bette Midler Stars with Abigail Breslin and Laverne Cox, and um, it's about a little drag queen in high school who gets bullied, and it's, uh, I wrote it 10 years ago, and it's more timely now than it right. was then, because it's a drag queen in school, and he's getting beat up in the bathrooms, and it's like everything sort of dovetailed interestingly together, so keep an eye look out on that. So that had been enough about me, right. I'm sorry. Um, uh, but I was telling you before that like I, it's, it's hard to get published, and right. it's hard, like my agent I think is dead, and he won't, <laughs> I haven't heard from him in three years, and um, uh, but so I was thinking of self-publishing, and I don't I, I don't know enough about it to know that it how what are the pitfalls and how did yours succeed when so many fail? My mine succeeded because um, well because I think the title I hate the internet. You could, yeah. as I've said before, you could you could print a blank book with that title, <laughs> and a couple of thousand people would buy it as a fashion accessory. Um, but also, the thing that I did with, <laughs> with the press was, 
it just occurred to me that I had to, that if I were going to do it, that I had to publish other people. Because there's a, there's a history in California of people founding presses and then publishing themselves and also publishing their friends. So like City Lights is the most famous example, but even like Chris Krause at Semiotext and, um, or like Dave Eggers at McSweeney's. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and because of that and because of the people I was able to get to let me do books with them, it looked much more legitimate um, when it was coming out. And then the other thing is I, um, I had this intuition, which I think is absolutely true that um, publishing is pay to play and so I hired a really good publicist and she did this really amazing job on the book. What's her name given to all of Leah Paulus. Okay. She runs a place called Press Shop out of Brooklyn and anyone who has a uh, book coming out should probably hire her. <laughs> um, and she, I, and I mean, she just did a really remarkable job. And then the book came out in a very, at, what at the time felt to me late, but which then turned out to be exactly the right time, which was February 2016. So everyone was feeling crazy about the election mm. and the internet, mm -hmm. but no one wanted to kill themselves yet. <laughs> um, and so it really rode that wave. It really rode this sense, I think, that everyone had that something truly terrible had had manifested through the internet. And, you know, it's like, it, that's really what happened. And then it, it went completely insane. Um, the craziest thing that happened is there, it got picked up for a lot of foreign editions. And um, one of the editions is the Serbian edition. Mm. And it's like, it's, to the extent that they have bestseller lists in Serbia, it's a bestseller in Serbia. So you're huge in Serbia yeah, right now. I, <laughs> I actually am, which is weird. Um, like, but I, like if you go, will people recognize you on the street and will I, you be get they fans? Might, and they might, because I, I, I went to Serbia. I got invited to this German literary festival in Cologne in March, and then they only wanted to fly me over for two days. And I was like, that would kill me with the jet lag. What else can I do? It's like, well, the book is coming out in Serbia. I should go to Serbia. And I thought, and I talked to the publisher, and he's like, yeah, yeah, you can come do a thing. And I thought it would be like talking to 10 people in a room. And then from the minute that I stepped off the plane, it was like being the Beatles or Stop something it. like that. Yeah, I mean, I, like, <laughs> I ended up on television a couple of times. I ended up on the radio a couple of, a couple of times. And the event was crazy. They did like a four-page article in the Serbian <laughs> Newsweek. Uh, wow. So it was, you know, it, it has no connection to my actual life. Where I where I retain, but still sort of, you're here, yeah. huge in Serbia. Huge in Serbia. <laughs> so you know it really went out of control. That's and really fun. So, but we should probably get back to this. Yeah, yeah. no, but um, this uh, this is getting amazing reviews. I've been reading them online. I've been looking everywhere for them. I think I'm reading them more than you are. I don't read reviews, so yeah. No, it, people, you know, it's getting lots of comparisons to Bradley's Big City and right. you know uh, Less Than Zero and that whole sort right. of Brat Pack era. So. It really is. It's a fun book, and it's. Um, it's. I was thinking though, and you're going to hate me for saying this. Um, the character's name is Baby, mm -hmm. and Baby Driver just I know. came out. I know. Just, were you, did it kill you? Because I, my entire time reading it, I'm thinking of Ansel Elgort now. Um, no, because <laughs> I, 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 my thought about it was like, 
the overlap between the people who buy books in hardcover <laughs> and, and the people who, who see Baby Driver is it's probably... The Venn diagram exactly, is me. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Um, it was annoying because the book was written yeah. so long ago mm -hmm. and it was just like, oh, God, another thing. But <laughs> you're the first person to mention it to me. I'm sorry. So. I should not have no, no, kept no, my no, mouth no, shut. No. I've been waiting. <laughs> I've been waiting for someone to ask. That's uh, fine. I, I, will, I will tell you a funny story, actually, be, because you mentioned Less Than Zero. So Brett Easton Ellis is a character in, in the book um, and there's a scene in his apartment which required only moderately creepy stalking to sort of get the apartment right. <laughs> um, and uh, because of someone in the audience, Matthew Spector, um, he, you know, we'd sent the book to Brett Easton Ellis, and then I, I guess uh, Spector asked him what he thought of it, and he's, I guess he was entirely happy with his appearance, except for the music that was playing <laughs> in his apartment. Never played. What was the song? The song the, well, it, the song was uh, "My Prerogative" yeah, by I Bobby. Remember. He said, "I would never have played my prerogative." <laughs> and then, <laughs> yeah. Why did you choose that song? I can tell you, um, <laughs> but but I'll tell you what he. Yeah, and so in that so <laughs> and so in the book, it's Debbie Gibson, but it. It really, actually, I thought about it a lot, and I was really amazed by, you know, you can do all of this research, you can try to get the thing as accurately as possible, and there's still some things that you're going to miss. And the thing with that is, you know, and the way, the way that I'm about to say this sounds sort of insulting, and I'm not sure why, and it's genuinely not meant to be, but it's like, that is a massive cultural shift just in that comment because he's so right. He's so right. And that was when there still could be legitimate pop music made by white people, right? <laughs> but I'm younger. I'm, I'm younger. So for me, of course, if I was looking at whatever was on the charts in 1990, it's going to be Bobby Brown because that's what I remember. That's what everyone... But, like, you know, he's from that generation where people were listening to Huey Lewis in the news. And, Gibbs, yeah. Yeah, or, like, Rick Astley was genuinely a thing. He was. And so, and so I thought it was... I had Debbie Gibson's electric youth yeah, perfume yeah. that I wore every <laughs> night. And so it's just, like, it's this amazing thing where no matter how hard you try, you still get some, like, the tiny things wrong. I will, afterwards, when we were talking, because there are two... two oh, what things. are they? You, <laughs> well, one, I was really upset with you when uh, you said something about there was a thing saying that um, only Michael and Walt read books or something like that and I was right. thinking well first of all Michael Ehrlich has never read a damn book in his life and the second was that Walt probably bless his heart probably was not a big reader I was the reader I, I, I think <laughs> does, does a character say that because I think it I, might be someone making a mistake him, okay I will I will okay. let that yeah, go yeah. Um, and then the other one was um, in the very beginning he's in Times Square and he he, passes, he says Club USA, but Club USA was a theater, and it wasn't a, a club until uh, 1991, the, 92 is when it opened. No, that, that may be an accidental ambiguity in the text, because I think what he's supposed to be saying, and this is where you know the writing has failed, um, <laughs> I think the suggestion is supposed to be that the only time he ever really went 
to Times Square once he moved to New York was when he was going to Club USA. But it's not supposed to be in, situated in 86. Right. So that's, that's okay. a failure of the writing. <laughs> okay. um, um, well, let's open it up for questions. Let's, let's, if anyone has any want, want to talk to. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I love the, uh, the internet. <laughs> and and the, the, just the title grabbed me initially. But uh, you apparently use the same characters or some of the same characters? Yeah, well, so when this, this book, the two main characters are Baby and his best friend, Adeline. Right. And Adeline is the protagonist in I Hate the Internet. And mostly, I would say that this book, uh, The Future Won't Be Long, is Baby's story. Um, but when I started writing I Hate the Internet and I was trying to think of what the right person would be um, to juxtapose up against the internet. I was thinking of like, like Adeline in this book is, she's, I guess she's Gen X and she's like a wild Gen X girl. Um, and I sort of think that people from that moment may have had the hardest transition to using the internet. Um, and also I was, I also, I have a lot of high, high-minded theories about why it's a good idea to have characters reoccur in books, but also it was just like, you know, the manuscript hadn't been published. It had no hope of being published at that time. And it's like, I still like this character. Uh, this is an easy way to do it. And I think it actually serves the text, and I hate the internet a lot, because you couldn't get that really minimal style if you didn't really know the histories of the characters. Um, Someone compared, someone online, one of the few things that I did read was someone comparing I Hate the Internet to a novel by Tao Lin. Uh, they was like, well, this reads like Tao Lin. I was like, you fucker. <laughs> Where are the Tao Lin books about middle-aged women? You know, like, this is nothing like a Tao Lin book. But I like Tao. But it was just a very stupid comparison. So. Uh, that's Great title. Was that your the future won't be long. No, this book has gone through endless, endless titles. Um, Give us three. <laughs> <laughs> the one that I wanted them to use, uh, and which they really were opposed to, was "Everything Is Horrible," um, <laughs> which would have been a much, much better title for August 2017. Um, they really didn't want to use that one. And then... Because oh, the negative, like, you can't have the negative in the... I don't know why. I've, I've been told that. Um, and then another one, the one that it got sold under, which is actually taken from this, this section that uh, I just read, was Never Let It Stop. And they really wanted to use that. And I was... And my argument was, and I think is the right argument, that eight months into a Trump presidency, it would be really, really hard to sell a novel to America's liberal intelligentsia with the title Never Let It Stop. That like just, you just couldn't do it. Um, and that won the day. And the joke's right itself. Yeah, yeah, and also with an incredibly long book, mm -hmm. you know, you, that's, oh, yeah. that's, uh -huh. the, that's the second paragraph. I <laughs> wish it would stop. Um, you know, also, it does have long in the title, but no, no one's made that pun yet, I hope. I haven't read them. 
But the reason that uh, where the future won't be long comes from is there is this really obscure British folk band from the Canterbury from the Canterbury scene in 1970 called Spirogyra. Oh yeah. And um, they have a song called "The Future Won't Be Long," and I was like, "Well, that's a good title. I'll, I'll steal that." Um, their song is about a factory worker dying while being bombed by the Germans. So. And then, uh, and then also I thought, actually, one of the reasons why I think the title works, uh, particularly in connection with I Hate the Internet, is like, everyone in the book thinks they are the future, right? They are young, they're arts-oriented, they're in New York in the 90s, and they all sort of have this idea that what they're doing uh, has some paramount importance. And maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But none of them are even good with computers. And so they're haunted throughout the book, I think, by this future that's coming in which this entire way of life that they have been practicing is about to become impossible. But I wonder if it's um, defending the people in the 90s before the computers, sure. um, is that it was easy to feel self-important and to feel like you had this big mm -hmm. destiny ahead of you because I think every time I get it on the internet, I feel sort of beaten down and small, like right. I'm not as important as I once thought I was and I'm not as clever as I thought right. I was. But in the end, but there wasn't the echo chamber telling you. Yeah, no, you. I think so. I so, think so. I, I think it's easy to be grandiose in the 80s as opposed to oh, more yeah. so than now. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I, yeah. that, it's not a criticism of their grandiosity no, yeah. in any means, because God knows I was delusional in the 90s, too. <laughs> so. Yeah, I just want to say thank you for the no prisoners kind of attitude for the internet. And I, I just kept reading and chortling, like, this guy is never going to get a job in San Francisco. You gave me a to a friend of Richard Apple. Hilarious. I was just wondering, you use fame or famous people, as, you know, as punching bags a lot of the time, but sometimes they're shorthand for values, I think, as well. Right. And I think it sort of carries over a little bit. I mean, are there any famous people you like, or is there an attitude you're monkeying around? Uh, no, I mean, I know a handful of people who are famous who seem totally Okay, um, but but I think I think it's I think it's a really it's a huge challenge writing right now if you want to engage with culture outside of a limited set of characters. The only thing anyone talks to anyone about anymore is famous people, and I mean we live in a moment where we the the presidency has been conflated into dark celebrity like that's the, that's the moment we're in it's it, it, it's gone completely metastatic um and i don't know like the idea that i had about myself as a writer 10 years ago when i started to really do it seriously i would never do any of this shit like i i never wanted to write about the internet i never wanted to write about fame I never, w I never would have done it because I think there's this huge danger that it makes the books ephemeral. But at the same time, if you live in a moment that's entirely ephemeral, you have to engage with that horror. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I gave in. 
I really gave in because I couldn't figure out any other way to do it. Um, but I do think that uh, with this book, I haven't read uh, I Hate the Internet, but th there is a, a sense of affection for, oh, yeah. th for the people, these, these awful, awful, awful right. people <laughs> um, that I, I think that is you're noodling around in their heads. Right. I, I think that you're sort of finding things about them that you enjoy or maybe finding things about yourself. That yeah, no, I, I mean, also, you know, but this is, this is a historical piece and I think part of that history is that um, they were much less awful. Well, but that's, that's mythologizing yeah, the past. Course, that I mean, I mean, I've always had the idea that I was obsessed with Warhol's factory when I was right. a, a teenager. And then I grew up and I got to meet a lot of them. And I realized that they were just really annoying speed freaks. That, yeah. And if I ever spent any time <laughs> with them, I would, like, I, would, I would despise them. And it's that thing where glamour always right. takes on, you know, like the past always takes on a glamour. And this whole era, right. if you live through it, it was, you, no, there was nothing well, really it was all pretty miserable. Well, so this, this leads into a question that I that I wanted to ask you because you sent me a Facebook message about this. Um, you lived in Daniel Rakowitz's apartment. I did. I Speaking did. Speaking of horror, <laughs> um, I was living in this uh, Avenue C. I mean, when Avenue C was the end of civilization, it was um, uh, this. Little standalone. Uh, uh, it was a storefront that I was converted into, like a studio, and I was living there. And every day, I would notice that there would be these little groups of like Japanese tourists taking pictures of my apartment. And I was there, my my uh, little place. And I was thinking, Am I famous in Japan? Is that what's going on? Like I had no idea. And, it, and then um, I finally went, and someone said I took someone home, and they said, Oh my God, this is the Rakowitz house. And I said, What are you talking about? And it turns out that there was this guy, and he he murdered uh, some homeless people, chopped them up, made them into stew on my stove, and fed them to people, fed them to the other homeless people in, in Tompkins Square Park. Yeah. Don't yeah. Have to tell you about that? No, well, I, it was <laughs> in New York in the 90s, so nobody was, they were just trying to get rid of the play. I mean, it was, yeah. it was like this, whole, it was the whole and building, it was like 400 a month or something. It was. Um, and, um, that's in the book, too. And the reason why it's in the book is because. Excuse me. Um, it struck me as so the danger with I think writing about Michael is that everything with Michael was exactly that glamour that you're talking about from the outside when you're looking at it from the outside. The Rakowitz murder because he didn't murder homeless people; he murdered his oh his girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, uh -huh. yeah I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Um, but the Rakowitz murder is almost the exact same thing as Michael's, the circumstances are different, but it's like somebody gets dismembered in a bathtub um, and then everyone knows about it. Because yeah. when that happened, Rakowitz was so insane that he went out and told and people told everyone. It's the same as Michael when he, Michael walked out with guilt written yeah, on his forehead. Yeah, exactly. It, so it's the exact same story and I thought that it is a little mirroring, it, isn't I it? I thought it was and a I way was to... Like, it's yeah. the same thing with like me in both places. That's very yeah, funny. and like I thought it was a way of at least implicitly cutting across the glamour of Michael. Because, you know, if you look at Tumblr, 
tons and tons of kids love the club kids and are, are constantly posting about how fabulous Michael was. And of course he was and when he was at his best. But he wasn't. And, and that's that, that like what I was just talking about was I always talk, when I, when I talk about Michael, I say that being with Michael is always the most annoying time <laughs> of your life, but the next day you have a fabulous story. Right. And Michael is always better in the retelling right. than he is in exactly. actually being with him because there is nothing more tedious than spending time right. with <laughs> and even back even during those time yeah. during those parties it was always like how can I get away from him um, how can I go you know it was like those but my, my thought was no one posts about Rakowitz the mm. Tumblr no one thinks that this guy was fabulous it's just <laughs> uh, and so it's it's a way of trying to cut across exactly that nostalgia and that well and it, it also I mean if it is the same thing then you know like why is one glamorous and why is the exactly. other the sort of seedy story what yeah um, well, I can't answer that. Oh, you, yeah. You, you, because um, uh, Michael had better publicists. Publicist. That's what I was going to say. And, yeah. um, uh, you know, when I wrote Disco Bloodbath in 98, and it came out in 99, um, the whole idea of the Club Kids was this sort of seedy, nobody wanted to touch mm -hmm. it. It was like, ew. Every, and it wasn't until the documentary came out, Party Monster, and then the book, that people remembered that there was some fabulous fun right. times. But it was ready to be relatively to oh, the dustbin of history and nobody ever wanted to talk well, about it again. For me, it was really weird because I moved to New York in 96. Uh -huh. And so I was there to just sort of, and I knew a few people who were club people. And so I was there to watch were it. Were you at the Honey Trap? Did you go no, to? No, no, you didn't. Okay. No, no, no. I was not that. I, I couldn't do that. I could do it now. Uh -huh. Then I was, it, it, it was a bad scene. Wait, how, because you, you look like you're 25. I don't understand. I'm how? 39. You're 30, okay. okay. Um, but um, he, uh, but yeah, no, so I was reading it and watching it play out uh, yeah. as my introduction to New York. This insane story about this guy who'd killed his drug dealer and everyone knew and, you know, the cops wouldn't do anything. And, you know, then the Village Voice had that hackneyed but incredibly appropriate headline, the party's over. When he got it, when it he was got his arrested. skull or something. Yeah, it was, just, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, I'm not a huge I'm ripping on this, but I think when, what's interesting is like when, well, when Michael committed the crime, he was part of another, uh, another uh, culture, or as part of the club culture. If somebody did the same thing today with YouTube and stuff, it would not have that sort of dramatic, operatic. I I. I mean, it's like it's not it's not the nineties, but 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 there was a distance when when the murder was committed, getting you know getting the news out to the rest of the world. It takes time. It takes a, and then it's sort of like and you get that that time you're thinking about what happening. Oh, that's shock here. That's weird. But nowadays, it's so instant. I mean, yeah. And I think you lose that sort of that, that, that judgment period or that sort of period where you sort of reflect on it. 
Well, yeah. As a matter of fact, because I mean, is is the it was coming out in dribs and drabs that someone was missing, and maybe they were murdered, and maybe maybe there was uh, there were rumors that someone in the club scene did it, and then and then they you know found a body, and then they didn't find the body, and it it was over the course of almost two years before the whole thing came out, and um, it, there was no internet really at the time. It was AOL dial up, right. and so um, you really did. You ran out to the newsstand. You got your copy of the Village Voice. You read the whole, it wasn't like a, a page six item, it was like you read the whole, and there was a whole, there was, so as it was happening in real time, I think it had a chance to seep in a little more than if today when there's, you know, something happening every day and uh, like you're bombarded with all these different stories and one story is fabulous for 10 minutes and then another story. So I think it, in the fact that the whole club's kids scene had been going on for 10 years, uh, I, there are, really aren't scenes that can build on, like in, in the underground anymore and bubble up the the way that that did organically, um, you know. Now, if if you know, there's a witch dubstep scene right. in in you know Bolivia, then you know about it like ten minutes later, and then it's over right. in twenty minutes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think, don't leave me here with this because the pathology of a guy murdering his girlfriend and then serving a stew to the homeless people. Talk about dark celebrity. And the other thing that I'm really struck by is Paul Auster's son, of course, he doesn't mind being mentioned in this hip young novels book. You know, I mean, you know, you're like, that would be like, that's a type of celebrity nobody could buy, you know, to be in your book, you know. Don't you think so? No. Um, you know, because Paul Oster was, uh, has made sure that Daniel is in a cabin in the woods for the last 25 years. Nobody has seen or heard from him. I know Paul's ex-wife, Suri Hevstet, Hevstet's, yeah, she wrote a book, a, a novel about right. having a demon child who got involved with this sort of cult-like right. leader. Um, and I think Paul was furious about it. And I know Daniel like went even further underground. Right. Um, I don't think this is. It's. It's a. I don't think the family is is happy with with any of it. But go on to you know this guy that the Japanese tourists are fascinated by. I mean, because I mean, you're a writer, just kind of give me your your grasp of that kind of thing. how it plays into it. Um, I mean, he, you know, he's doing this really grotesque thing, and yet he's feeding homeless people. Well, he's feeding. I mean, he fed homeless people her body. Like she made, he he was, Rakowitz was really really out of his mind. He um he was this guy who wandered around the East Village. He looked a little bit like Jesus. He had a rooster that he carried with him and had been a problem for people for years. the The best thing about him that was ever written was um there was an article in the Village Voice by an actor from Dirty Dancing, who then himself went on to die a horrible... He, he committed suicide? No. I think it was an overdose or something like I that. I remember all that, yeah. yeah. And he wrote this really staggering article about it because it was an article about how people knew and, and, and how, like, the complicity of all of these people who came in and saw the head or something like that, and then 
it's a really amazing. I haven't thought about that in years. Yeah, it's a, Can you re- do you remember what the guy's name was? Max Cantor. Okay. It's not online. It uh, isn't. No, you can only you can only find it if you go digging through it's microfilm. Like fiche in yeah. the library. Yeah. Do they still have microfiche, or did I just date myself? They they have it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's usually the most unoccupied part of the library, <laughs> but it, it's there. Um, but for me, it was just it was. Uh, there's some there. It, the parallel with Michael is in that is in everyone else knowing, right? Um, and there's something about that which is really dark and is really the dark side of all of this. Where if you're in the East Village, and a lot of people who were in the East Village were there because it was sort of like a like a temporary autonomous zone, right? Where you were you were free from a lot of social constraint. The problem becomes what happens if you are in, in, in a place that is free of those social constraints and something happens that manifestly de- demands social constraint and how people, how does that play out and where does responsibility get taken? Um, I kept coming back to at the time the Kitty Genovese story mm-hmm. and um, that uh, the idea that I guess I was thinking, you know, or everyone thought that someone it was someone else's duty to right. go to the police because we were all drug addicts and we were all operating illegal after hours clubs. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to, nobody went to the police because the police were the bad guys and we right. would get locked exactly. up as well. Exactly. So um, it was this, it was like the walls were coming in on you because like it, you just knew that like if, if one domino goes, then right. go, everybody you knew was going to go down exactly, as well. Yeah. And, it, it, and so it, in a weird way too, I think it then becomes, particularly with Michael, a story about prohibition, right? Where it's like if you have a society that prohibits behavior, in this case drug use, that, you know, and this is a different kind of drug use than what is destroying the country now, right? Like this isn't big pharma pushed opioid crisis. Um, but if you have drug use where, which is where the harm is relatively limited outside of the individual doing it, um, and you have people who are in that druggy mindset, right? Where like if you're doing a lot of drugs, the prohibition isn't the same thing. But it's still a law, and it sort of creates this ambiguity when something that is really terrible happens, because then the law about that is, you know, how do you have an interaction with that law if you if all of your time is spent breaking laws? I'm not explaining this very clearly, but right. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Well, I, I do sort of wonder if there's sort of the same thing that's happening now that we're seeing play out this this weekend where all of a sudden people are saying, you know, now I'm drawing a line for Donald Trump. Right. Well, you know, where were you when the pussy grabbing? Right. Where were you when the Mexicans? Where yeah, were you yeah, the rapists? Yeah, yeah. Where were you? Like, like, there was something back then where there there was a line, but the line was way, way out right. there. And we'd been living in a bubble with, with no laws, and we were just making up our own right. lives and our own world right. for so long that we had no idea what real world, the real world was anymore, right. and this came crashing in, and we all had to figure out where that line was, where we would step out of the bubble and right, into the exactly. real world. Yeah, and, and so it's, 
you know, it's a, it's a meditation on that. So. Oh, sure. Um, what's it like having a book come out right now in this craziness, right? Because like you, like, I just think <laughs> about that all the time. Like, that's you know, the million dollar question. Yeah. Mm. yeah. You know, uh, I mean, people say like people don't read anymore, and they're only like. It's it's um, it's very weird because I am nothing if not self-obsessed, <laughs> and it's like, but at the same, and so it's like, why, why isn't, you know, why isn't the book taking off? Why isn't the book taking off? And it's like, well, the country is in the process of destroying itself. <laughs> and, and so, you know, like, sorry, I gotta take this up. Well, I can't, it doesn't matter. Um, the joke that I was making eight months ago when I sort of decided to step out of the process of, of the packaging of the book entirely was like, publishing is divination. Um, you're trying to predict what's going to happen eight or nine months down the line. And this was before Trump had even assumed office and it was like, that's impossible. And so the joke that I was making was like, well, the book will come out the day after we nuke North Korea, and in the future, literally, will not yeah, be long. Yeah, in the future, won't be long, and then that that'll be it. That, yeah, and it's it just like it's impossible to know. It was impossible to know. Um, I do think it's a very difficult sell to be like four days ago. There was a white nationalist rally that ended in death please buy my book about parties in the 80s. It's just, it's just incredibly difficult. And I, and I think, um, you know, if, if, if uh, we'll see. I mean, it's, just, it's been hard. It's been really difficult. I mean, it's, it's a very, very small thing compared to everything that's going on. But it's, it's really strange. It's really, really strange. I do remember that after, on the day of 9-11 was the day that Mariah Carey's glitter came yes. out. And I remember her thinking of her spinning around her apartment saying, right. why is this happening to me? Yes. Yeah. And I, I, I yeah. sort of think that that's what, what you have to say. Like, why am I not able to sell my book right now? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you were talking about research. wondering if you could say a little bit about how you did the research for Atta. Sure. And how you got into Muhammad Atta's brain. Sure. Um, it, well, the, the building block of it was that I had read uh, this nonfiction book by Terry McDermott called Perfect Soldiers. Um, and one of the things about the moment and when he was writing was most of the people who were hijackers on 9-11 came from very obscure origins, and there's still not a huge amount about them known. Um, Ada was the one who had, by virtue of being upper middle class, by, by virtue of being from Egypt, by virtue of having had this academic uh, background in architecture and urban planning, that a lot, of, a lot was known about. Um, and so he sort of becomes McDermott's uh, through line uh, in a lot of the book. And one of the things that he doesn't do, he gets very, very close, but that he doesn't do is he never makes the leap from saying someone who did a bachelor's degree in architecture and a master's degree in urban planning and wrote 
a master's thesis on pulling down high-rise buildings, who then participates in the most prominent uh, pulling down of high-rise architecture, might have had some motivation beyond just religion. But you can see him getting right to that line. Um, and so that was sort of the initial motivator. And then the more that I read about him, uh, the more you could piece together this very unhappy figure um, who was, and, and again, too, th this was sort of a sub-function of what I just discussed. After 9-11, pretty much everyone who ever knew him was almost immediately interviewed. And with a lot of the other hijackers, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't find people to interview because they didn't even know where to go. So you're looking at newspapers? Yeah, and, and there's, a, there's a decay in that, too, um, where when it's the initial shock, the interviews are useful. And then once everyone has been, had a few months to think about their proximity to this media event that they've just had to live with for four or five months, the interviews become completely useless because it becomes people parodying, uh, parodying um, media. And so, and so like they lose sight of whatever it is, but there's that initial moment of shock. And then also one thing that was really helpful, and um, I think probably this will be the end of this part, because um, uh, the FBI, a bunch of 9-11 truthers filed a Freedom of Information Act request and dumped all of the files online that they got. And one of the most useful things is that the FBI created a timeline of the hijackers' lives from the moment they were born until 9-11. And it's a really weird document because in the beginning it's very spotty, but then the closer and closer you get to 9-11, the more and more granular detail there is because they were in the U.S. using credit cards. They were in the U.S. using calling cards. Yeah, and so it turned out to be incredibly valuable. So, and I, I'm sorry? Thank you. Oh, sure. What's your next book about? Not talking about it, it's done. <laughs> oh, so. That's exciting. Yes. Um, all right, well. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, And, and again, thank you, James. Well, thank you, you for having me. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.